Chapter 24 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Scalp I was roused before dawn by the stir and bustle around me. On rising to my feet, I found the party preparing to march. Every warrior ran out for his horse. The pickets were drawn, and the animals led in and watered. They are bridled. The robes are thrown over them and girthed. We pluck up our lances, sling our quivers, seize our shields and bows, and leap lightly upon horseback. Our line is already formed, and wheeling in our tracks, we ride off in single file to the northward. From conversation with my companions the night previous, I had discovered that only the leaders of the party knew our destination. The rank and file were as ignorant of the intentions of their commanders as is usually the case among the armies of more civilized peoples. The young braves who were my chosen companions on the march and in the camp neither knew nor cared whither we were bound. They expected the expedition to result in our return within abundance of scalps and plunder and that was all they cared about. During the forenoon, we passed over a moat of prairie or park. Its surface was nearly level, but it was studded here and there with clumps and coppices of cottonwoods and other trees and shrubs. To the north, the horizon was shut in by a lofty mountain chain, which seemingly barred our pathway although at a great distance, and between us and this barrier was a range of much less elevation, such as are called foothills in this region. About noon, we came upon a small stream which crossed our line of march, running off to the eastward. Upon its banks we halted for a short period, watering and feeding our horses, and satisfying our own appetites from our supply of dried meat. This done, we resumed our march. We now found the timber islands became less frequent, and in half an hour's ride we left them altogether behind, and rode for several miles over an open plain. We saw timber ahead of us, and had approached within about a mile of it, when one of the runners, or spies, about fifty of whom were scouting ahead, came back and reported to the chief that they had discovered a small herd of buffalo grazing upon a small prairie or sort of natural clearing beyond the belt of woods. Although we were well provided with dry meat, the prospect of fresh buffalo steak was not unpleasing and a hunt was at once determined upon. Halting the party, Stone Hoan directed the renegade to take his own band and join the scouts ahead. 
Together, the bands would constitute a hunting party of about 100 warriors, quite large enough for the destruction of the small herd before us. As I had attached myself to the band of Hisodicha, I found myself destined to take part in the enterprise, and anticipated no little amusement and sport. Riding forward cautiously until we reached the timber, which was not very dense chaparral, we rode slowly and silently through the bushes until we encountered a number of scouts cached in the thicket, and evidently waiting for us. What is it, Hanatomoa? asked Hisodisha of the leader of the scouts as they rode up. The scout replied that they had found the fresh tracks of a small herd of buffaloes, and on following them up, had found the animals feeding upon a small prairie beyond the chaparral in which we were concealed. The renegade dismounted, and telling me to accompany him, walked forward with the scout to the edge of the thicket. Peering cautiously through the leaves, we had a full view of the open ground. The buffaloes were upon the plain. It was, as Anatomawa had said, a small prairie about a mile and a half in width, closed in on all sides by a thick chaparral. Near the center was a moat of heavy timber growing up from a dense underwood. A spur of willows running out from the timber denoted the presence of water. There's a spring there, said the renegade, turning to me. I have been here before, and know the ground. How can we get at them? He continued, turning to the scout. Do you think we can approach them? No, said Hanatamoa. There is not cover enough, and besides, they are getting further away from the bushes as they feed. What then? asked Hisodisha. We can't run them. They would be off through the thicket in a moment, and we would lose them all. Yes, replied the scout. That is certain, but we can get them for all that. I never saw a better place for us around and it will take but a short time to get our braves in position. True, said Hisutecha. If the wind is right, how is it? There is none, said the scout, taking a feather from his headdress and tossing it in the air. You see, it falls direct. I see, said Hisutecha. Let us divide the men. We have enough to pen them in completely. You can guide one half of them to their stands. I will go with the rest. You, Tateka Daher, he continued, had better bring up your horse and stay where you are. It is about as good a stand as you can get.
You will have to wait patiently, as it may be an hour before all are placed. When you hear the signal, which will be the hunter's whistle, you may gallop forward and do your best. If we succeed, we shall have plenty of sport and a good supper. And I suppose you are ready for that by this time. The renegade now left me, followed by the scout, and went back to the rest of the party. Their intention was to separate the band into two equal parties, and each taking an opposite direction to place men at regular intervals around the prairie. They would keep in the chaparral while on the march, and only discover themselves when the signal was given. In this way, if the buffaloes did not take the alarm, we should be almost certain of securing the entire herd. As soon as Hisso Decha left me, I selected my hunting arrows, which, unlike those used for war, are not poisoned. Then I brought up my horse, and having nothing else to do, I remained seated upon his back, watching the animals as they fed on, unaware of their danger. The screaming of birds, who flew up from the thicket, showed that the hunters were proceeding to their stands. Now and then, an old bull, standing like a sentinel on the outskirts of the herd, would snuff the wind and strike the ground violently with his hoof, as though suspecting that something was wrong. But the others did not seem to mind him, and kept on cropping the luxuriant grass. Suddenly, an object made its appearance, emerging from the moat in the center of the prairie. It looked like a buffalo calf proceeding to join the others. As usual, a pack of coyotes were sneaking around the herd, and these, on perceiving the calf, made an instant attack upon it. To my surprise, it seemed to fight its way through them, and soon joined the herd, and was lost to view among them. I thought no more of it, and was wondering how much longer I would have to wait for the signal, when I noticed that the buffaloes were lying down one after another. In a few minutes, eight or ten were stretched upon the turf, and I observed that they fell suddenly, as if shot, and some of them appeared to kick and struggle violently. I had heard of a curious habit of these animals known as wallowing, and concluded this must be it. As I had never witnessed this maneuver, I watched them as attentively as possible, but the high grass prevented me from seeing much. At all events, I thought, the surround will be complete before they get ready to move, and I waited patiently for the signal. The buffaloes still continued to lie down one after another, and at length, the last one of the herd stretched himself upon the prairie. At this instant, the shrill notes of the Indian whistle reached my ears, 
and a wild yell arose from all sides of the prairie. I urged my horse forward. A hundred others had done the same, all yelling at the top of their voices as they shot out of the thicket. Filled with the wild excitement incident to such a scene, I galloped forward with my bow strung and arrows ready, intent upon having the first shot. To my surprise, the buffaloes did not stir. The Indians closed in, yelling as they came, and we pulled up our horses in the very midst of the prostrate herd. I sat upon my horse as if spellbound, looking about me in consternation and wonder. Before me lay the bodies of the buffaloes, and I seized with a superstitious awe when I perceived that every one of them was dead or dying. Blood flowed from their mouths and nostrils, and from wounds in the side of each, the red stream trickled down. The prairie carpet was dyed with it. My companion seemed at first as much surprised as myself, but some of the more astute quickly divined the mystery and commenced looking about with keen scrutiny. Suddenly, the renegade urged his horse forward, and on turning to see what he had discovered, I saw the buffalo calf whose existence I had for a time forgotten. The calf had been concealed behind the carcass of one of the buffaloes, but now appeared to be endeavoring to make off into the timber. Hisso Dicha rode up to it, evidently intending to pierce it with his lance, when the animal suddenly reared up, uttering a wild human scream. The shaggy hide was thrown aside, and a naked savage appeared, holding up his arms as if pleading for mercy. His appeal was a vain one, however, for the ruthless renegade pinned him to the earth with a thrust of his lance, and springing from his horse, finished him with his tomahawk. He then scalped him, and remounting his horse, directed some of the warriors to scour the prairie as they might find another calf concealed in the long grass. With the rest of the party he rode up to the moat and they quickly formed in a circle around it. Familiar as I had become with Indian cruelty, I felt a sensation of horror and disgust at this cool shedding of blood and I halted irresolutely by the body of the dead Indian. He lay stretched upon his back, naked to the breech clout, the red stream flowing from the lance wound in his side. His limbs quivered, but it was in the last spasm of departing life. The hide in which he had been disguised lay near him, where he had flung it at the moment he was discovered. Beside him were a bow and several arrows. The latter were covered with blood, the feathers steeped in it 
and clinging to the shafts. They had pierced the bodies of the buffaloes, passing entirely through. Each arrow had taken many lives. I was still contemplating the dead man when a yell from the moat attracted my attention, and I rode thither. I reached the spot just in time to see the body of another Indian dragged out from the thick undergrowth and his fortunate slayer, who happened to be one of the younger braves, took the scalp with great complacency, as it was his first trophy of the kind. The Indians evidently believed that another of the Coyoteros, or Wolf Apaches, for to this tribe the two dead savages were declared to belong, was concealed in the thicket, for they were formed in a sort of irregular circle around the copse, peering into it from every direction. Hisodicha now ordered the warriors to close in from every direction and search the thicket. In this maneuver, I found myself compelled to take part, as otherwise I would have incurred the stigma of cowardice. We dismounted from our horses and pressed into the thicket from all sides. For a few seconds, nothing could be heard but the cracking of the undergrowth as we forced our way through it. Suddenly, a yell arose from the side opposite to my position, and almost instantly a third coyotero sprang from a dense clump of willows near the spring and made for the opening. It chanced that I was directly in his path, and he was rushing upon me with upraised knife. Strong as might be my repugnance to taking human life, the instinct of self-preservation was still stronger, and before he could reach me, I had pierced him with an arrow, and he fell dead almost at my feet. In an instant, the warriors had gathered around me, and I was being congratulated upon my bravery and skill. Not feeling particularly proud of the achievement, I was about to remount my horse, when Hisso Dicha reminded me that I had neglected to scalp the fallen foe. So I was compelled to perform that operation, which I did rather clumsily. A thorough search through the thicket and over the prairie having satisfied my savage companions that no more of the Coyoteros had been present, we returned to the dead buffaloes and began skinning and cutting them up. Stone Awan soon arrived with the remainder of the band, and as it was nearly sundown, we encamped upon the spot. The spring furnishing water and the grass of the prairie in abundance of rich food for the horses. As for ourselves, we feasted in true savage fashion, finding the fresh steaks, tongues, and hump ribs a decided improvement upon the deseo which had previously been our diet. I was compelled to listen to many encomiums upon my courage and dexterity, and some of the young braves ventured the opinion that, 
Tateka Daher would soon be as great a warrior as Isodicha. Painfully impressed by the scene of slaughter in which I had been an unwilling participant, I held myself aloof as much as possible from the merry groups around the campfires, and at an early hour wrapped myself in my blanket, and wearied by the fatigue and excitement of the past two days, I was soon buried in a heavy and dreamless sleep, which continued until the dawn of another morning again compelled me to come forth. And this time, it was not as an inexperienced brave, but as an acknowledged warrior, for I had slain an enemy and taken my first scalp. I cannot say, however, that my increase of notoriety was a source of satisfaction to me, but quite the contrary. Somewhat to my surprise, we remained by the moat spring for three days. This was necessary in order to convert the buffalo meat into Taseo, as we had not a sufficient supply for our purpose. On the evening of the third day, the meat being sufficiently cured, we struck camp, and rode off to the north until we had reached the chain of mountains which crossed our path. Here we turned to the eastward, and journeyed along their base intending to cross at a well-known pass about twenty miles above. Reaching it at nightfall, we again encamped, designing to pass the mountain range the next morning. End of chapter 24